Thank you so much, Sona. Uh, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we gather. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We ask the ancestors of these lands to be with us in spirit as we seek to learn and understand, to grow in knowledge and compassion. Welcome everybody. It's my pleasure to um, welcome Joy Deep. Um, um, we're very excited today to have Joy Deep with us. Joy Deep is the founder and managing principal of People and Culture Strategies. And today's session is on what does good look like team leadership in 2021. Joy Deep is a graduate of Harvard Business School's Owner President Management Program and one of Australia's most high profile lawyers and legal entrepreneurs. He has authored 12 separate books on people management, law and strategy and regularly appears on Australian TV as an expert commentator in his field. Thank you, Joy Deep, and over to you. Thank you very much, Mafanwe, and thank you uh, to all of the participants in today's webinar. It's wonderful to see so many people interested in, in this subject. So today's session is intended to be a couple of things, a, a bit of a deep dive into why people management uh, can be and, and is challenging for uh, a lot of people. I'm sure uh, the things that I'll be talking about will resonate with those of you who um, have people management responsibility, which I understand is, is probably most of the people who are participating in this particular webinar. But it's also intended to be a very practical set of uh, ideas and a toolkit almost for, for you to be able to utilise in your day-to-day -day dealings with, with people. This, the title of today's webinar, What Does Good Look Like?, is a phrase that uh, I've been using for, for many years in the context of working with people managers and supervisors and team leaders on uh, how they can become better at managing people. And, and, and seen in that particular context, this phrase is um, a little bit of a mantra. It's very simplistic uh, in, in terms of the words that are used. And, and I know that uh, words such as good and bad might, might seem almost too, too simplistic and not appropriately HR savvy enough. Uh, in order to be the subject of a discussion around getting the best out of people. But as will become clear as we're talking, there's a reason why that particular phrase is very important. The, the notion of an organisation and a manager embracing this philosophy of being able to define what good looks like and the power of it is something that, that can't be underestimated. I mean, at its most granular level, uh, it allows a leader, it allows an organisation to put in place the frameworks against which people are going to be judged, a framework against, against which people's performance is going to be measured. Uh, if you apply that philosophy across a range of people in an organisation, well, then you're starting to build the framework for a performance culture. And of course, we talk about performance culture, not just in the context of uh, that being something that organisations need to do, but aspirationally, organisations talk about wanting to have, and in many instances, having a high performance culture. So it starts with this very basic premise. So we're going to get into the detail of um, what, what do we mean when we're talking about this particular phrase, what does good look like? And... Um, I, I want to put this in a, in a particular context by way of, of, of introduction. So uh, I have been working in this space as a, as a lawyer, as a strategist, as an advisor to organisations uh, in the context of the management of a whole range of people issues over the last 25 years. 
Um, in the legal context, that's everything from uh, drafting and negotiating contracts of employment uh, right through to the litigious aspects of, of the employment relationship ending or dealing with people going to competitors um, and, and, and everything in between. In the non-contentious or the more uh, preventive and uh, anti-law space that I've been working in, a lot of that work has been done in the context of training and education. And a lot of the work that I've been, done in a, been doing in an advisory sense has been working with organisations and their management, uh, people like yourselves, who are experiencing particular challenges with a particular individual. And what I find very interesting and have found very interesting is that when we talk about why a person is a difficult person, for example, and, and if you just think about this particular uh, concept through the following exercise, and um, I appreciate that some of you don't necessarily have large teams, but this exercise is, is a useful one and an important one, whether you manage a team of two people um, or, or a team of 200 people, it, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't tend to work if you're only managing a team of one person, but anything more than one uh, allows this exercise to, to serve some, some value. So what I often ask uh, managers to do when I'm doing a workshop, for example, on, on uh, those managers becoming better at managing performance. And, and that's essentially what today's webinar is all about. I ask them to uh, look at the people who are in their team, the people who they manage or they supervise or they lead, and, and to line those people up. Uh, it's, you know, close your eyes, line those people up, and at the front of the line have the person or individual who you consider to be your best performer. And at the back of the line, at the end of the line, have the person who you consider to be your worst performer. Now, of course, this exercise um, leads to some questions and provocations, no doubt, from people. They'd say, well, it depends what you mean by best, it depends what you mean by worst. But, but most managers and leaders of people, in my opinion, don't really struggle too much in identifying who is their best performer in their team and who is their worst performer in their team. The, the visuals of this exercise is important. You line up the people, the best at the front and the worst at the back. And what I want you to reflect on is, what are the attributes of the differentiators here? What are the attributes that makes the person who sits or stands at the front of the line different from the person who sits or stands at the back of the line? In other words, what is or are the things, the characteristics of a person who is seen as a good employee, indeed the best employee, and how does that differ from the characteristics or attributes of a person who is seen as a bad employee or a poor employee or an underperforming employee? Now, I'm sure that what most of you would say if the thousands of workshops I've done on this particular subject throughout my career are anything to go by, uh, noting there's an extraordinary amount of commonality in terms of the feedback in response to this particular exercise or question. I'm sure that for many of you, the kinds of words that you would use to describe the, the attributes of the person at the front of the line, very little of that would be based around the, the technical or functional competence of that particular person. And indeed, in the same way, I'd be surprised if the attributes of the person who is at the back of the line, the so-called worst performer, would be very much revolved around that person's technical or functional competence or incompetence, as the case may be. 
What's more likely to be the case is that when you are describing the attributes of the person at the, at the front of the line, the attributes of what makes a good employee, what makes this person my best employee out of all of the people who I'm managing or leading, it would probably uh, incorporate phrases and concepts such as uh, they have initiative, they're low maintenance, they're a self-starter, they just get on with their job and do it, they're minimal fuss, uh, they are easy to work with, they share their ideas, they go over and above. And, and in the same way, it's probably those things in reverse or the, the, the negative aspects of those precisely same behaviours that would characterise the person who would be at the back of the line. So what's interesting about this is that as leaders and as, as, as human beings, when we look at what makes a good employee, uh, we're, we're more often swayed by and influenced by the softer aspects of that person's performance, the hows, if you like, as opposed to the whats or the, or the harder indicators of a person's performance. And this is a really important point because if you accept that this is in fact the case, while it's helpful in terms of us being able to have a, 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 and articulate a set of parameters around this question or notion of what good looks like, it leads to, in practice, a pretty big problem, which is the problem of the disconnect between what a person is engaged to do or hired to do and the difference between that and what that person is regarded as being good at or not so good at. They're hired to do the what, yet we measure them and assess them and consider them good, bad or otherwise based on the how. And herein lies one of the most important, critical um, and, uh, and difficult challenges when it comes to the management of people, bridging the gap between the what and the how. And over the years, this has manifested itself um, for, for me in a, in a number of, of different ways. Uh, when I look at managers coming to me and, and saying to me, oh, look, it's just not working out with this particular person or this particular individual. And I'll often say to that manager, what is it about that person? Why is it not working out? What, what is the thing about that person that um, is troubling you and troubling you clearly to a point where you're frustrated? You're frustrated, you want to do something about it, you're probably losing sleep over it. You're in fact so concerned that you're talking to me about it. So clearly it's, a, it's more than a nominal or low level frustration issue for you and perhaps for your organization. And answering that question is often more difficult than, than it would appear. Often resulting in managers and supervisors saying things like using phrases such as, well, they just don't get it. The person just doesn't get it. There's something, they, they, it's, there's something about their body language or phrases such as they're, they're not a good team player or they're countercultural or they're having a bad impact on the team. Now, these phrases, um, while completely understandable, and I know exactly what it is that's, uh, that, that's being addressed there, um, are all observed, but very rarely the subject of actual conversations or feedback between the manager and that particular person. And so we need to actually understand why is it 
that this is so difficult? Why is performance management such a difficult thing for, for line managers to execute on and execute on well? I think the starting point for it is that we often forget that um, when someone is hired with your organisation and, and their relationship starts as employer and employee, and let's assume that you are that particular person, supervisor, manager, leader, whatever might, whatever might be the uh, language for the, the relationship that you have with them. We forget that that is the end of a journey, albeit that it's also the beginning of a journey. It's the beginning of the, the, the time that that person spends as an employee of your organisation, of your schools or whatever it might be. But it is also the end of the process whereby that person has been determined as the most suitable candidate for a particular role. And then I just want you to, to work with me on this particular exercise uh, or, or analysis of the, the sequence of recruitment and how it is that someone comes to be hired within your organisation or any organisation for that matter. More often than not, uh, roles are advertised or there might be a, a recruitment agency or a search firm that might be, be engaged for it. But let's assume that it's a, this is a simple matter of us putting a job on Seek or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. In that particular job ad, we will probably go into a fair bit of detail around the role um, around some of the, the desirable uh, characteristics or, or background qualifications of the person who ultimately will be successful in this role. And um, we put that out there. It might be that we talk about um, some things to do with our organisation, our, our values, our mission, uh, but we certainly don't go into a huge amount of detail around that. It is, after all, um, uh, an advertisement that will have some limitations uh, from a word count or um, number of, of amount of space that can be used. Now, if we flip to the perspective of a putative candidate for that particular role, let's say it's me, I see this job advertised, uh, I look at it, I see that it is for to be a, I don't know, a, a sales representative. Um, and that's a regardless of industry, there's, there's always roles that uh, need to be doing some kind of selling. So, so let's assume that we're just taking that as a hypothetical example. Now, more often than not, uh, I will only submit myself for consideration for that particular role, will I not, if, if I feel that I can do that role. And typically, I will feel that I can do that role, either if I have done that role previously, or a similar role previously, or even if I haven't done a role uh, similar to that previously, um, I feel I have the necessary qualifications to do that role. It's very rare, not impossible, but it is very rare that a person will submit themselves for consideration for a particular role, thinking or knowing that they have no qualifications or skill set to be able to do any part of that role. That would be a little bit weird. Although, uh, as, as some clients tell me, stranger things do happen. What happens in response to the submission of my application, recognising that we're talking about me, and let's assume in this scenario that I'm going to be the person who will be successful for this particular role. The message that I send when I apply for a role with your organisation is not just that, hey, 
give me a shot. I'm interested in doing this role. Why don't we just both take a chance on this relationship? No, it's more than that. It is actually a positive statement of me saying to you as my would-be employer that I feel that I can do this job well. In fact, if I didn't feel that I can do this job well, I wouldn't be submitting myself for consideration. Then you as the employer, in response to my application, do what? Well, you either reject it, but let's assume in this particular scenario, I'm going to be uh, invited in for an interview. And so what happens at the interview? Well, you talk about the things that you consider to be important. There might be some probing questions around past experience and suitability and alignment and all of those kinds of things. But there is an important message that you have sent to me, assuming that you haven't just interviewed every single person who has been who has submitted themselves for consideration for this role. That message is of all of the people who have submitted themselves for consideration for this role, you and the other people that we are interviewing are seen as better than the people who we are not. Now, we don't often talk about it in this way or even think about it in this way, but therein lies a message sent by the prospective employer to the prospective employee that the prospective employer thinks and acknowledges that there is probably some merit to the prospective employee's assessment that they are able to do this job well. And if we keep going through this recruitment journey with the person who ultimately is going to get that job, what happens? The, the, there is a narrowing of the funnel, of course. There might be a second interview, there might be a short list. And ultimately, if I'm going to get this job, the message that you have sent to me in giving me that opportunity and making that offer of employment to me is what? Well, quite simply, the message is of all of the people who we could have employed, of all of the people who submitted themselves for consideration, who we interviewed, etc., we consider that you are the most suitable candidate of all of them. So when I talk about the end of the journey, the end of the journey comes with it a very strong message sent through the act of offering employment alone. And that message is, you were the best. You were the best person of all of the people who we could have hired. You were the best person. What is significant about this, uh, this process or this, at the end of this journey, noting that really from the employer's perspective, they would very rarely, if ever, think about it in this way. They would think about it as, well, that was just the process we needed to get to, to start the journey of this person as an employee of our organisation, which is when the person has to perform. But by disregarding that previous journey, we disregard a very important point about the psychology that a person or an employee brings when they join an organisation. When that person starts working for you, in their mind, they are suitable for employment. Not only are they suitable for employment, they were the person most suitable for employment. They don't start from the perspective of, well, I haven't proved myself, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a nothing, I'm a zero on day one. On the contrary, they start from the premise that, well, I'm actually a significant something because in a relative sense, I got this job over all of these other people. In that person's mind, when they start employment, they start from the perspective that they are a very adept performer at that role. In fact, 
what you have done in hiring them because of that journey that I've just shared with you has validated that perception. Is it any wonder then that if after a period of time, it doesn't matter how long we're talking about, whether it's days, weeks, months or whatever, is it any wonder that if after a period of time we want to turn around to that candidate, uh, to me, and say, well, actually, you know, uh, we've got some issues or concerns in relation to your performance, that that message is unlikely to be well received. In fact, recognising that, you know, you, you hired me over all of those other people, it now seems almost contradictory that you're saying to me that, that I'm a poor performer. What does that say about your recruitment practices? It certainly doesn't accord with my assessment of my performance. In fact, I don't know how many of you in the course of having, let's call them difficult conversations with team members, have ever had feedback that uh, endorses and validates your um, proposed or actual performance management of a particular person. I don't know too many people who, who say to their managers or say to their boss, I completely agree with you. I am really, I'm really hopeless at my job. Thanks for telling me. I couldn't agree more. I probably shouldn't have been allowed to pass my probationary period, you know, and uh, thanks, for the, thanks for the extensive documentation confirming all of the things that I'm doing wrong. Really appreciate it. It doesn't happen that way. People very rarely see themselves as poor performers. We have to respect the critical importance of psychology as an inhibitor to effective performance management. And so this is the, the first thing that I wanted to share, that the recruitment journey itself actually contributes to why performance management is difficult. You know, the, the, the other aspects of how someone is engaged are also worth reflecting on in this particular context. When we talk about um, the contracts or a contract or offer of employment or employment agreement that is issued to a particular person, let's face it, very little discussion or debate takes place uh, on the side of the employer preparing that particular employment agreement. And, and beyond that, even less discussion and debate probably takes place between the employer and employee. When a candidate who has been told that they are successful uh, in their application for a particular role gets the contract, what do they look at in the contract? Well, they check you know, that the role is stated correctly. Most importantly, they look at pay. They might look at some of the other benefits. They'll look at working hours, definitely. Um, in this environment, in the last 12 months, people are looking very closely at working from home arrangements and other things but they're not getting into a lot of detail around the, the metrics of how their performance is going to be addressed or, or indeed what those metrics of performance are that are going to exist in the contract. Now, that's not to say that, you're, you, that you don't have a position description or a, or a job description as a schedule or an extra to your contracts. I'm sure you do have that in, in, in your organisations. But... Back to my example of me being a sales employee. Well, if I've been a sales employee one place, I've been a sales employee in a thousand places. Most position descriptions for sales employees are pretty much the same. And most of them go to deliverables that I know go with the territory of being a sales employee or a sales representative. So when I see that position description or job description, there's, there's not a lot in that that's going to excite me. There's not going to be a lot in that that causes me to debate and discuss with you as my prospective manager or a representative of um, my prospective employer organisation, the ins and outs and intricacies of my employment contract. So I typically just sign it because it's a means to an end, but in the same way for the employer. 
issuing that contract, getting the contract signed, is more often than not about getting a proverbial bum on a seat than it is about engaging with the candidate around anything meaningful about their performance. And this is very interesting. And one of the, the huge, one of the, the, the largest, I should say, opportunities missed by an employer, which is the failure to use their contracts as a mechanism for defining performance expectations for their employees, particularly new employees. And the reason they're not doing that is because if you go back to the example we, we worked through at the, the beginning of the discussion, lining people up, what are the attributes of the person at the front of the line versus the person at the back of the line? The differentiators are about softer indicators. They're about the gray. They're about the how a person does their job and far less about the what of their jobs. So it's not about whether they are doing what's in their position description. That's very rarely uh, a feature that distinguishes a good performer from a bad performer. It's more about the how. Is the person a good team player? Is the person a good cultural fit? Are they a positive influence? Do they conduct themselves in accordance with the organisation's values and principles? Do they behave themselves in a manner that is consistent with the culture that the organisation or the team or the department is wanting to create? That stuff very rarely features in the context of an employment contract or a position description. So herein lies the problem. You have contracts. Those contracts do have position descriptions. The position description details the job that a person is expected to perform. But the things that are going to be the make or break factors for that person, in other words, the things that you as that person's manager or leader are going to be in real terms measuring them against, are not featured or featured in a very cursory way at best in the employment contract. In other words, if we accept that what good looks like is the manner in which a person does their job and the extent to which that accords with how that person's leader expects the job to be done. We are not capturing that in the most, in the most important document in the employment relationship, which is the employment contract. I'm hoping that here at the sort of half hour mark of this particular session, you're already identifying a critical action for you in your organisations, which is to look at what do your employment contracts say about what good looks like? What do your employment contracts do to help you in terms of managing poor performance based on the real things that are going to be the measures of performance. What are those real things? Well, it's that exercise. It's the lining up. It's the attributes of the person at the front and the attributes of the person at the back of the line. Let me recap. What good looks like is about the extent to which the way someone goes about their job being in accordance with how their manager expects that job to be done. So when managers talk about the person doesn't get it, the manager is very 
rarely and, and probably 99 times out of 100. Not saying that the person not doing their job. In fact, in my experience, um, most of the issues on which I've given advice and, 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 and provided guidance relating to an underperforming employee or, or someone who's seen as an underperforming employee very rarely involves a person who is not doing their job as measured by their position description. If I'm a sales representative and I'm meant to be doing 10 sales calls a month and trying to generate X dollars of new business each month and I'm not meeting those targets, my manager is not going to struggle to address that with me. It's black and white. It's measurable. It's probably set out in my position description. In other words, those expectations have been contractualized. What organisations, however, need to be doing is flowing from what does good look like is challenging themselves to contractualizing what good looks like. So you've got to be clear on what good looks like and then you've got to contractualize it. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on, I've, I've always thought the contracts are legal documents and you don't want to muck around with them too much and uh, there's a bit about contractualizing or creating into some kind of legal document stuff that sounds a lot more warm and fuzzy and nuanced around what good looks like um, just, just seems to be, be, be too confusing and problematic. And as I always say to my clients, it's your employment contract. It's your organisation's employment contract. You can put into it pretty much whatever you like, so long as you are not offending or breaching any external legal instruments that apply to that person's employment. Going to town with more detail rather than less around the specific behaviours that are expected of a person in order for them to demonstrate good is the work that organisations need to be doing more of. The more time that is invested in the engagement and the articulation of what good looks like at the time of engagement, the less pressure is put on managers and supervisors to have to deal with this when the problems arise. Because if we keep going with this analysis of why is performance management difficult, well, let's face it, um, those of you who um, are in management roles, it's probably unlikely that uh, for the entirety of your careers, you've been in management roles. I'm sure many of you are, are, are very competent and very capable managers of people, but that's not a skill set that was just gifted to you. It's very rarely a skill set that comes naturally and innately to, to, to most people. In fact, what happens in most organisations, and I, I dare say this may well be the case in respect of a number of you participating uh, in, in today's session, most people are promoted to leadership roles and supervisory roles because of their demonstrated functional or technical uh, expertise and excellence. In, in other words, the fact that you were good at your previous job or your antecedent job is the very thing that has led you to being put in the position of being a manager. But then all of a sudden, as we all know, that comes with it a whole new set of challenges around having to manage people. And there's no book on this. There's no quick uh, TED video that you can look at that says, well, this is all you need to know about managing people. It's hard. And it's hard because you know, we, we ourselves still have 
uh, our jobs to do. We still have our own reputations and careers and, and, and bosses who, who we have to report to. And it's also understandable that um, some of our own fears, inhibitions, um, mindset challenges when it comes to managing people contributes to what might come across as uh, ineffectiveness when it, when it comes to the management of people. So I think when I'm, when I'm asked to dissect why is it that managers struggle with this, well, the, the first part is that there's actually not a lot of good training and meaningful training for managers when they first become a manager of people. But more than that, there are a, a number of understandable but unhelpful mindset inhibitors for managers. One is, um, I think when a manager observes that uh, a team member is underperforming, um, the manager will often hope that the issue will take care of itself. We see this all the time, particularly with a new employee. New employee, first couple of weeks, if there are some early warning signs, it's very unusual for a manager to, uh, to jump on that employee and, and start a rigorous process of performance management. Why don't they do that? Well, it comes from a good space in my experience. It comes from the space where the manager wants to give the person time. Uh, you, you want to show that you're willing to be patient. You're wanting to give the person a go uh, rather than almost being disrespectful of any adjustment that that person is having to make. But we know that what this is really a reflection of is hope. And as someone said to me, hope is not a strategy. Hoping that someone's performance is going to improve, hoping that a person through observation is going to get things right is not going to get you there. You need to address it. Now, it doesn't have to be addressed necessarily in that full level of formality of a performance improvement plan straight away, but it still needs to be addressed. So that's one example. The, the other is, I think for, for a lot of line managers, is there's a, uh, a healthy amount of fear. There's a fear that if you initiate a conversation with someone about some aspects of their performance, that they may make some kind of claim or complaint against you. For example, they might complain that you're bullying them or harassing them in, a, in an environment where those words are getting a lot of airplay in a number of very different contexts. And who needs that? Let's face it, as a manager, uh, why should I uh, have to worry about further stress? Uh, life is difficult enough as it is for me. Um, for me to also have to worry that if I have a conversation with a particular team member, that person will turn around and, and claim that I'm bullying them. Simply put, I just don't need that. So there's, there's the hope piece, there's the fear piece. And the third piece I think that, that has a, a crippling effect for managers is the, uh, is the uncertainty piece. And if you go back to the, the, the main theme of this session, which hopefully is becoming very clear that what good looks like is very much about the how of a person's job and, and very little about the what uh, of their job. Then for, for a lot of managers, the uncertainty piece is them not even knowing or being confident enough to progress discussions about a how because they don't even know if they're allowed to. And I'll give you an example that comes up quite a lot. Managers will, when, I, when I'm probing them and pressuring them to give me some data points, some evidence of why someone is seen as a, um, 
a, a poor cultural fit or not a team player. Often the thing that will be talked about is, is the body language of that person. And examples will be given to me regularly, how this person has negative body language, projecting negative energy in team meetings. And, and when I probe even further, they'll give data points along the lines of, you know, they'll sit there in a meeting with their, their arms crossed. They won't be looking at people. They'll be looking up and down. They'll be fidgeting. Um, they might be muttering things under their breath, might be rolling their eyes. The eye rolling gets discussed quite a bit in, in the context of, of, of this, uh, this subject. And all of these things are noticed, but the manager doesn't know whether, as frustrating as it is for that particular manager, whether he or she can say anything about it to the employee. Am I breaching some law in talking to that person about their body language? Because what's happened is those managers have been conditioned, as I'm sure many of you have, to thinking that the only thing you can speak to a person about when it comes to their performance is the what. And herein lies the problem. So we have to get better at defining what good looks like. But what our real challenge here is, how do we contractualize what good looks like? And, and critically from that particular point, recognizing that we've defined it or identified it and now contractualized it, is how do we measure it and manage it? So the three elements of the journey are identifying what good looks like, contractualizing what good looks like, and then measuring and managing what good looks like. So, so let's talk a little bit about the challenges of the, the, the management or the measurement and, and management piece. I'll go back to an earlier example I gave around the, the sales representative who's having to make a certain number of calls each month who, who might be falling short of that particular target. Well, well we know that uh, measuring that is easy. If I've got to make 10, 10 sales calls a month and I'm only doing five, well, it's a, it's a black and white indicator, isn't it? And you sit down with me and you say, look, your contract's very clear. You've got to be doing 10. You're only doing five. There's a gap there. Um, you need to be improving. And you might even go further and say, well, if next month it's not a significant improvement on five, well, uh, th th this process is going to escalate in seriousness. And that's fine. It's harder to do that, isn't it, when we're talking about eye rolling and, and arms being folded and negative body language in a meeting. It might even be hard to talk about um, people being gossips. Uh, and we know the type. We know the people who, um, after a particular group meeting, will express their views um, about an initiative, about their employer, about their manager, about co-workers um, in hushed tones uh, to, to their colleagues, uh, recognising that when um, a manager or leader comes uh, within earshot that they change the subject very quickly. We know the type. What we're talking about here, though, is why is it so difficult for us to contractualise those behaviours? If they are if avoiding those behaviours is a critical part of what good looks like, why is it so difficult for us to contractualise it? See, when we talk about contractualising, it's not just the contract itself. When I talk about contractualising, I talk about the contract being the holistic arrangement that exists between the employer and the employee. The directions and guidance that is given to an employee by their manager, the on-the-job feedback and direction 
We all know that so much of that direction and guidance provided by a supervisor or a leader to a team member sits well outside of the contract. Why can't we do that in relation to these building blocks of what good looks like? In other words, why can't we have more direct conversations and put in place the appropriate guidelines for exactly how people are to behave? And as I say to managers when I'm coaching them or guiding them through one of these issues, if you can feel it, you can, you can talk about it. In other words, if something is bothering you and you feel how much that is bothering you, you can certainly articulate that that is something that is bothering you and put in place the things that will stop bothering you. I'm sure some of you are hearing this and say, so what are you saying here, Joy Deep? Are you saying that, you know, I can speak to someone about telling them to stop their eye rolling when, um, I'm, in a, when I'm presenting to my team and they're sitting there and that's what they do? And my answer is yes, you can and you should. Because you actually not just owe that to yourself, but you owe it to that person. What could be more unfair to an employee than to have their manager have a view about something that they are doing, yet not address it with them? It is surely the most fundamental principle of any kind of performance management that feedback should be given candidly where that feedback is germane to how someone is perceived as a performer. But this is a significant paradigm shift. And this is something where managers struggle and they struggle for good reason. Before I uh, finish and allow some time for questions, I want to address what I think in the context of this measurement and management of what good looks like are some critical uh, watch outs for you as leaders of people. And when I say watch outs, some of these are more in the, in the realm of opportunities as much as they are watch outs. But the, the one thing I, the, the first thing I'll talk about in that context is what I refer to as the first five minutes opportunity. The first five minutes opportunity is in my mind, this notion that when a person first starts working uh, for, for an organization, that's the start of the relationship. We talked about the, the, the first journey culminating in the job offer and the new journey being there when they start working. The beginning of that second journey, the responsibility lies with the manager. Indeed, I would say in the first five minutes of the engagement, of the starting point of that new employment relationship for the manager to have a conversation with that new employee where they say something along the lines of, this is not to be taken literally, but hitting some key messages such as, Welcome to the organisation. I'm your manager. I want to have a conversation with you even before you've had the opportunity to put your bag down and finish that cup of coffee that's in your hand. And some of the things that I want to and need to address with you at this very point in time, and it's not something that can wait till later, are what the nature of our relationship needs to be in order for it to be an effective working relationship. Between you and me, there must be at all times a platform of trust a platform of trust which requires you to understand that as your manager, I have your back, but I also need to understand that if I am your manager, you have to have my back. At all times, a critical identifier or hallmark of this platform of trust is communication between us. Now, most of the responsibility for communication rests with me as your manager. 
sometimes that communication will be of a positive nature. It will be about endorsing and validating something you've done, encouraging you to do more of the same. Other times there will be less communication from me and you can assume that what you are doing is in accordance with what I expect you to be doing at those times. But there will be other times where the nature of the communication will be of a negative nature. Indeed, in a worst case scenario, if after talking to you about some things that you may not be doing correctly, it may be that there needs to be a more formal process, a more formal process that could, in a worst case scenario, see things such as warnings and performance improvement plans, and, and in a very worst case scenario, a discussion around you leaving the organisation. And all of this might sound very unpleasant to be talking about with you in your first five minutes here, but it's important that I make it really clear that there is a platform of trust and there needs to be, and that a hallmark of that is ongoing and regular communication. Many of my clients have been so uh, influenced, positively influenced by the first five minutes uh, mantra or doctrine, if you like, that they've actually incorporated that as part of their onboarding. And, and I'd encourage you to, to think about what you can do with that. And in that, I've already talked about the, the notion of the platform of trust. The other point that I'd like to make um, on the, in this context of measuring and managing what good looks like is when you are giving feedback about any of these kinds of matters, I often see managers falling into the trap of convincing instead of explaining. Whereas what you should be focused on as a manager is to explain, not convince. I see this all the time, often because managers have allowed a build-up of frustration in their mind before they initiate a conversation with a team member and then they'll let it all out um, and, and it comes across as either overly formal or overly set up, um, not genuine, sinister, and more often than not, it's happening it's the first time there's been a serious conversation between the manager and the team member um, in the entire employment life cycle to date. It's, a, it's no surprise that an employee responds to that in a negative way. It might even be in a threatening way. And the employee says, well, you know, I'm not a bad employee. You're a bad manager. And employees will often say this. You're the worst manager I've ever had. I've been you know, working in numerous organisations. I've had lots of managers. I have great relationships with all of my supervisors and managers before, but don't have a good relationship with you. And I don't think I'm the problem. I think you're the problem. And understandably, that is often responded to. Uh, in a negative way. And so you get this escalation in, in conflict and, and confrontation. Hardly conducive to turning a person's performance around. So a lot needs to change within organisations and within managerial behaviour if organisations and managers themselves are serious about being better at managing performance. Now, in this context, if we just briefly reflect on some of the challenges over the last 12 months, well, what have we seen? We've seen an extraordinary amount of change and adjustment, new ways of working, new norms when it comes to behaviour, new norms when it comes to communication. And what organisations have not done well, in my experience, and are continuing to not do well, is adapt their definition and articulation of what good looks like to be responsive to the circumstances that surround them. What good looks like in many organisations, they have translated that good looks like us 
working well and communicating well as a team and putting in place practices where people were working from home and, and some continue to, um, where they've got back-to-back -back Zoom calls or Teams meetings for the entirety of the day. And that's done in the name of, well, that's keeping people connected. Good communication means good teamwork. That's what good looks like. And that's not sensible. If you look at and hear the feedback from people, people feel that that's a form of over-monitoring. In some instances, that's a form of taking people away from getting the job done that they need to do. So the message around what good looks like in a pandemic situation or any kind of crisis situation, or indeed at any time when you are dealing with changes, your metrics around what good looks like has to adapt. And we know, and I'm sure your own experience has been the same, that for some people over the last 12 months, their response to the circumstances have seen them go from a mediocre or even poor performer to a, a very good, if not outstanding performer. And the reverse has also applied. So unless we as an organisation are putting in place the measures and metrics at all times and creating a solid narrative within our organisation around what good looks like, noting that that is never going to be and shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all in every organisation. It's time-specific, it's manager-specific, it's department-specific, and it's circumstance-specific as well. So the final point in all of this is that what the last 12 months has shown us in the context of everything that I've shared with you today is that there needs to be a high level of agility around this whole notion of what good looks like. But it doesn't change those three fundamental elements. Identify what good looks like and define it. Contractualise what good looks like. Sure, whatever you can do with your written documentation is one thing, but the verbal communications and definitions and statements of what good looks like is a form of that contractualization. And thirdly, measuring what good looks like and managing what good looks like, remembering the things that might inhibit us or work against us, albeit understandable, because we are, after all, people. So um, I'm going to leave it there. There's uh, about seven or eight minutes for questions, which I am very happy to take. Thank you so much, Joy Deep. I, two of the things I really appreciate is that there is, you always give us a really clear roadmap, which is fantastic. And the second thing is that you instill some confidence to see that through and have those um, conversations about the eye rolls and the, and, the, um, and the negative body language, et cetera. So I really appreciate that. I've got a um, question here from Bruce Perry. Thank you, Bruce. And it's very similar to a question that I have, or it's tied into a question that I have about defining cultural fit. So we, we throw around this phrase all the time, or oh, she's just not a very good cultural fit, or he doesn't, he's never, you know, he doesn't get it, he's, he doesn't understand the culture, et cetera. So Bruce was asking about strength surveys as part of the recruitment process. And we could probably do a whole nother session on cultural fit, but just a couple of tips of how organizations and companies go about defining what that is. Yeah, look, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And um, the word culture is being uh, bandied about a lot in a number of different contexts at the moment, um, ranging from, you know, Parliament House rape cultures to uh, racist organisation cultures and things that, to, to be frank, have never, the word culture has never been used and abused as much as what it has been in the last couple of weeks and months. 
Um, and and I, I need to start with that because I think uh, organisations can um, get a little bit too caught up to their own detriment around this word culture. What I'd prefer organisations to be doing and recommend that they should be doing is focus more on your values. Focus more on the things that you want to stand for. What is your vision? Where are you going as an organisation? What are the values that are going to help you get to that journey? And then what are the behaviours that exhibit those particular values? And in that context, what are the behaviours that depart from those particular values? If you focus on those things, the culture takes care of itself. It's very difficult to transform or reform culture when that is your focus. It's much easier to do it in that sequential way, vision, values, behaviours, the culture will take care of itself. Thank you. I understand that. That's great. And we've just another question from Lee Walker-Franks. Hi, Lee. Good to see you online. Um, she said he loved the first five minutes. Is it appropriate for an employee or a consultant to do that with their boss or client? Um, so if I'm understanding the question correctly, is it asking, well, let's assume that the, 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 the question is asking whether um, it can be done upwards rather than downwards. Um, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But um, <clears throat> I, I think what's important when I, when, I, when I came up with this idea of the first five minutes conversation and, um, and it has become, it's become extremely popular and I love how, how it's being used, but it reflects the, the statement being made by the leader in that particular relationship, that they're in control, as they should be. They're the ones who are saying, this is how it's going to be. So, it, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a kind of brutally authoritative way, but it's a statement that it is the organisation's responsibility, the manager, of course, being a representative of the organisation in that context, to get this stuff right. It's the organisation that will be the one that is um, making it clear how important uh, communication is, how important trust is, uh, and how important that organization's values are. Because that manager has had the benefit, presumably, of more history. The employees there for literally two minutes in the first five-minute conversation. So while there's no problem with it happening upwards, uh, it, it, it works better, and I think it needs to be controlled by the, the, the manager or the supervisor. To the extent that the question was asking, is that something that can be done in a kind of client-facing um, supplier to provide a way, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, ultimately, this is really nothing more than when you think about it, um, saying that here are some commitments that I'm entering into. It's a, uh, you know, it, it's 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 marriage vows, in, in, if you if you want to look at it in that particular way. So th there's nothing wrong with setting the tone, but just be mindful that um, when you say it, you've got to act in accordance with it. If you're not going to act in accordance with it, you're better off not saying it. Yeah. And just finally, a little bit of your insight into 2021. So we're calling this COVID normal. We're not really post-COVID. We're in the thick of it. In the HR space and in our organisation space, what have you experienced so far? And what do you think, um, you know, with your experience of many years um, in this space to expect possibly in a year where we are still probably quite traumatized and tired from um, you know schools and universities obviously um, in an interesting position where they've worked probably harder than they ever have before. Yeah and you used a word there um, being tired and, and I think we, we can't underestimate that fatigue 
and the impact of fatigue uh, on people in many organisations. I'd go so far as to say all organisations. Um, what is going to happen this year and has already started to happen is that the challenge for organisations is most primarily, I think, going to be felt in terms of retention. I think there's going to be a lot of employees who, whether it's the fatigue, whether it's the, con the continued uncertainty around things like travel, um, long gaps between seeing family members, it's really starting to take a toll. Now, some would say, well, it took a toll from the beginning, but, but the first four to six months, say March to September of last year, everyone was just adjusting. And, and it went with this, yes, it's uncertain, but there's this fear of how bad could this go? Everyone responded to that fear of where might this go and no one really knowing, actually in a more positive way. Now that there is a little bit more, call it COVID normal or a little bit more stability, now is when people are not, and there's the vaccine, there's not that much fear, but there's still that resentment of all of the things that we are being deprived of, resulting in a lot of people reflecting on, on where they are in their lives, where they are in their careers. If I can't go on a holiday, well, at least I can change jobs. And, and, and that's, that's not a joke. That is in fact what is happening. I've had conversations with people across a range of industries, clients, uh, uh, suppliers, people who refer work to me, and people who I thought would never leave their organisations. Just saying, yeah, I, I just feel like it's time for a change. Now, sure, that could be a coincidence, but I think that there is something more, more to that. So being aware of all of these things as challenges, trying as best you can to connect with your people meaningfully, um, listening, <laughs> Um, and just saying, and look, this might sound very, very, very soft and untactical, but actually telling your people that it is okay to be feeling tired. It's okay to be feeling resentment towards the world at this point in time. Um, and, and, and almost calling out that it is understandable that people might be looking at a whole range of options and we get it. Let's take away, I guess, some of that feeling of isolation that people might have. And I don't use that in the COVID health sense, but the, the mental and psychological isolation um, as, as something that might actually really cost organisations more so than the, the natural uh, attrition issues are, are going to. Thank you so much. Um, that's uh, all the questions for today. So I um, thank you so much for speaking to Educate Plus. Um, Joy Deep is also going to be speaking at our international conference in Adelaide. Um, in September. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you again there. Joy, 